God, you are glorious. You are worthy of all that we have, of all of our praise. I pray that you would come, that you would uh, just have a sweet time with us during communion, uh, that it would speak to us, that you would draw near, that you would draw us near to your heart, God. I pray that uh, your word would speak strongly through Michael this morning, God, that um, you would awaken our hearts uh, to see you even more clear, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And you may be seated. And while you are doing so, if you will turn to the book of Ephesians, being uh, mainly chapter 3, but um, look at a couple of different places uh, in Ephesians. It is just a, a matter of physics, and it has been, I suppose, since the creation, maybe because it was in God's mind, it's been this way forever. But if you take a, a flat, something flat, piece of wood, uh, and you curve the front edge a certain way, and you run enough wind past that, that piece of wood will rise off the ground. It's called lift. Just It's a matter of physics. But for millennia, men would watch birds fly around. It's just a mystery. We didn't, we didn't get how that worked. Um, slowly over time, we, we began to experiment and do tests and, and, and figure out that, that what happens, and I don't understand this because I'm not a, a science person, is the change in air pressure between above and below that wing causes that thing to rise. But that was a mystery for hundreds and thousands of years until relatively recently in the grand scheme of things. What's interesting is is one of the greatest manifestations of that mystery, in my mind, is a, a 747. Here's something that weighs, when it's fully loaded, weighs almost a million pounds. And you think, (laughs) there is no way we can get that up in the air and keep it up in the air. And yet you get it going fast enough and that thing just sort of goes. And you can stand back and look at that and go, that's a miracle. And we know that's true, and I know it's true because I've actually gotten on one of those things before and trusted that would actually happen, right? And many of you have done the same thing, whether it's a 747 or something a whole lot smaller or anything in between. You believed that was true, and we know that you believed that was true because you were willing to get on and buckle up. And Some of you may have done this the whole time. Um, and, and here you are. You went up and you came down and everything was fine, right? There's another mystery that, that has been, well, true forever. The gospel, uh, Paul says, was a mystery. The truth of the gospel, he says in, in 1, 4, It's not one four. Hmm. Where did it go? Oh, nine. Maybe I can't. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. 
And then in all of chapter 1, he's talking about that mystery of the gospel, of the fact that, that God sent His Son and through His blood we were redeemed and forgiven and saved and given wisdom and the Holy Spirit is a seal. That we've been promised eternity. And that, that mystery, that unfathomable truth that Jim talked about last week, the idea that, that God became man, we could touch Him and talk to Him and relate to Him. That wonderful mystery all of a sudden became real. It was no longer a mystery. The power and the wisdom of God were revealed to us through Christ. And, and like that, in my mind, that 747 being really the ultimate manifestation of the miracle or the mystery of, of lift, this morning we're going to look at what I think is the ultimate manifestation of that mystery, the gospel. What if, what is that thing that I, that I look at and say, that's impossible if not for the truth of the gospel? That just doesn't happen. As we have been talking through our statement of faith, what our statement of faith doesn't talk about specifically is the local church. Um, but I'm going to spend a few weeks talking about the local church. Well, what does that mean? And what's amazing is, is this, this gathering right here has the potential to be for the gospel what a 747 is for Lyft. That, that someone who didn't quite understand that and was just looking at one of those things parked on the tarmac and I said, that can get up in the air, they would go, you're an idiot. <laughs> the local church has that kind of power, that kind of ability to, to reveal the gospel to the world. So to show you that, I want to look at Ephesians, specifically chapter 3. We're going to go back and look at one a little bit, uh, some more. But chapter 3, I just kind of want to go through it. There's four big things I want to talk about. I want to just go through this sort of verse by verse and see what Paul is talking about. So why don't you follow along? I'm going to begin reading in chapter 3, and I'm going to read some and stop and talk and read some and stop and talk. And I appreciate um, Jim last week setting a precedent that we don't have to be done anytime soon. <laughs> I'm not talking again for another two years. So. <laughs> no, no, it was really good. You can sooner than that if you want to. He begins, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then in my Bible there's a dash. And what he what what chapter one, what Paul's about to do in chapter three, he's been talking about who we are because of who God is. He's been talking about our position, what God has done for us. He lists about fifteen or twenty different blessings that we have. And he's about to do what Paul always does in his books, is transition from who we are to because of who we are, what the expectations are. And I guess right as he was about to write something, his pen and the Holy Spirit said, wait a minute, there's something else you've got to let them know. 
and there's this dash, and then the rest of chapter 3 is this big parentheses because he starts over the beginning of chapter 4. A little bit different wording, but he finishes his thoughts. So in chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So he finishes that, spot, that thought. What's interesting is the end of chapter 2 and the first half of chapter 4 are all about unity. It's all about how God has taken these disparate people and made them one. Second half of chapter 2, the first half of chapter 4 is all about unity. So if we think that 3 is talking about something else, we're not reading carefully. He's talking about the same thing in 3, but there's something else God wanted Paul to say to the Ephesians and to us to help us make sure that we really get it, to understand what's going on. And so there's this long parenthesis that really is about the gospel and it's about unity. So that's number one. Verse one is Paul's fixing to start and then he has to back up because there's something else we need to learn about the gospel and about unity. And then he introduces that in verses 2 through 5. He said, If indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Paul wants his readers and us to understand he was given a stewardship. A stewardship is a, a responsibility. He was given a gift. He said it's grace. And that was a stewardship for the Ephesians. And by extension, for us. That's rather humbling. That... God would give Paul grace and give him a responsibility that he needed to fulfill not only for a small group of folks in the city of Ephesus, but for you and I here 2,000 years later. These words were not just for those guys, but they're for us. And that stewardship, that responsibility, that grace comes with responsibility. And we need to buy into that truth. If you've been given grace, if you have received that, it's not just for you. God's given that to you to steward, to manage for somebody else. Depending upon how God has wired you, depending upon how He has placed you, sometimes that stewardship is for a small group of people and sometimes for it, it's for a huge group of people. Sometimes we have no idea the extent that that stewardship reaches. I doubt Paul had any idea of the extent of his stewardship and how far it would reach across the centuries and across continents. And there are some of you sitting in this room that your stewardship of grace can have that same impact, should have that same impact, will have that same impact. God did not give us grace just for us. He gave us grace that we would make disciples of all nations. 
But as we've said before, if he just gave you grace just for you, just so you could be with him in eternity, then we should just baptize you and hold you under, and then you're, we don't have to mess with you, right? Because people are messy. They get in the way. They cause trouble. They cause problems. So let's just convert them and send them on. But that's not the point. God gives us grace so that we can show what that looks like to other people. And so he asked them this mystery that I referred to earlier, and he's talking about that mystery from chapter 1. So I just want to remind you, I just want to briefly read through all of these blessings that come with the gospel. Number one, the big general, verse 3. You have been blessed, and I think collectively, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. People sitting in this room that call Christ Community Church home, I believe that we have everything that we need. Verse 4, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us, He adopted us as sons. We weren't worthy of being adopted, but He said, I want you to be part of my family. Verse 7, we have redemption through His blood. We have forgiveness of our trespasses. He has lavished grace on us. Verse 8, He's given us wisdom and insight. Verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance, eternity. Verse 13, we were sealed, we were marked as His, stamped. This is my property. No one can mess with it. We were sealed by the Holy Spirit. A down payment, a pledge of what's coming. Turn over to chapter 2. Verse 5, we were made alive even though we were dead. We've been saved by grace. Verse 6, we've been raised up and seated, past tense, in the heavenly places. Again, a reminder of the, the surety of God's promises. Verse 13, we have been, even though we were far off, we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, uh, an allusion to the Old Testament when you had to bring the right sacrifice and be clean to come near to the temple to even be close to His presence. The writer of Hebrews would, would expand that further and say we, we have access into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go and only once a year. Verse 16, we've been reconciled to God, we're no longer enemies. Verse 17, we have peace. Verse 18, we, we have access to the Father. Verse 19, we're no longer strangers and aliens. That's the background of chapter 3. We've got to keep that running through our mind. All these things are true as we read this. Okay, so again... Verse 1 reminds us this is about 
the gospel and it's about unity. Verse 2, we've been given a stewardship of grace. All of these truths, all of these things that he said are ours not to hoard and hold on to, but to steward, to manage that other people might see what God is like. And then in verse 6, we get the specific application of the gospel. Of what he really was, was, was trying to, that grace was for. What's he using it for? He says in verse 6, To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. My guess is most of us in this room read that and go, okay. And we don't understand the cultural context of what Paul has just said. Do you know we need to go back several hundred years? Let's go back to a guy named Jonah and God's call to Nineveh. God says, Jonah, I want you to go to these Ninevites. You could translate the word or substitute the word Gentiles. And Jonah says, not in your life. <laughs> I'm not going to go talk to those folks. And then we learn in chapter 3 why he doesn't want to talk to those folks. Because I know, God, you are slow to anger and gracious and compassionate and you're willing to forgive. And God, I don't want anything to do with those nasty folks. They're evil. And if you forgive them, if you bring them into a relationship with you, then I'm going to have to deal with them. And that's the mindset of Jews towards Gentiles. And Paul says, what the gospel does, as he's been talking about the unity of the church, what the gospel does is it makes Gentiles fellow heirs. They get exactly what the Jews got. Now, let's bring this down to our level, because I still don't think we get that. Okay, I can read about that. I can see why Jonah was upset. I can understand that he was ticked off, that he had to preach to these nasty people. You know the guys over in Syria that we call the Islamic State, and they, they keep putting videos up of them cutting people's heads off. And so one of those guys comes to Christ, so let's have him over for dinner and let's leave him with our kids and we'll go to the movie. You trust that? Would you like that? One of the guys that was in the video doing the beheading, you want to sit down and have a meal with him if he says he's come to Christ? That's the issue. That guy, if he came to Christ, would be fellow heirs with you. He would get everything you get. We don't like that because, well, we've been, well, I've been good. <laughs> it's like the, the parable of the, of the workers in the vineyard. Right? He, he went out and he got people to come work and they worked in the heat of the day all day long for 12 hours and he promised them he would pay them a certain amount. Well, he goes out after the sun's gone down about an hour and he grabs some more folks and they come in and work and then he lines them up and he pays the guy who's worked one hour 
the same as the guy who'd worked 12 hours. And that was the complaint. You've made him equal to us. He said, well, yeah, because I'm generous. You got a problem with that? That's what it means when Paul writes to these guys and said, the Gentiles, Islamic State, murderers, rapists, whoever you want to put into that category that sort of just kind of rubs you the wrong way, or maybe that person that just rubs you the wrong way that you don't like. They're fellow heirs. They're fellow members of the body. There's this intimate connectedness that says... In the same way that I couldn't, well, I could do without my hand, I really wouldn't want to. And if I didn't have my hand, you would say that I was handicapped, right? Or if I didn't have a foot, or if I had lost hearing or lost eyesight, you would say that I'm handicapped. You would recognize you're not whole and complete, something's wrong. And Paul says, The gospel makes those people that you don't like, that we don't get along with, Jews and Gentiles, those people that really shouldn't be together, the gospel makes them fellow members of the same body. It's a word that Paul, we think, coined. It doesn't show up anywhere else. For 600 years of that language, that's the only place that word shows up. That person that you despise is like the hand. You really, you might could do without it, but it makes things difficult. If I didn't have this hand, life would be much more complicated. I need it. And they're fellow partakers of the promise. They're going to sit down with you. side by side and they're going to take this and proclaim that you know what at the foot of the cross we're all the same I need this token of forgiveness in the same way you do you need this token of forgiveness in the same way that someone who's been cutting people's heads off in Syria needs it And that's a humbling thing for us to recognize. And that's the power of the gospel. Number four. Paul goes back and talks about his stewardship again of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power, to me, the very least of all the saints. This grace was given. Why? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable... That's a hard task. How do you preach something that can't be figured out? Well, as Jim said last week, only by the power of the Spirit revealing it to us. That's why Paul prays twice in this book. At the end of those great truths of chapter 1, and then at the end of these truths again in chapter 3, he says a prayer that God would enlighten their understanding. To 
preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So I've been given this stewardship so that this mystery would be made known, would be revealed. Other people could see it. We want to shine light on it. We want to bring it to light. So that, and here's the kicker, so that the manifold wisdom of God, the gospel, the the wonderful truth of the incarnation of Christ, might now be made known through the church. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says, my goal is to to get you to understand this so that you, church in Ephesus, you, church in Andrews, would make the gospel known. And how do we do that? What's the 747 of the gospel? Well, it's it's that Jews and Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. But again, we we can't think in those categories because we don't get those categories today. It's that you and whoever it is that you really don't like are worshiping together and showing how powerful the gospel is. It is you sitting down and having table fellowship and calling brother or sister that person that at the very least gets on your nerves and at the very most you really can't stand and you really don't want anything to do with because they freak you out or you're scared of them or they're so evil that you really don't want to have anything to do with. That's the 747 of the gospel. That's what's impossible for a world to understand. How can you get along? How can you continue to love that person? And that's what Jesus said. They will know you are Christians. They will know that you have bought into me, into the gospel. They will know that. How? What does he say? By your love, not just by your love, by your love for one another. It's not even by your love for a lost world. And that's what's rather remarkable. Because we think about our, our goal is to, is to reach the lost, and it is. They'll know that you really are my disciples in the way that you love one another. And I don't... I, I can't do that well. And that's why it is a manifestation of the power of the gospel when we do that well. One author writes, It takes a certain amount of maturity to find God in the person sitting next to you who not only voted for the wrong political party, but has a baby who is crying while you're trying to listen to the sermon. That's a rather silly example, I suppose. 
The church is supposed to be a unified diversity. The church and the early church was supposed to be multi-ethnic, multi-generational, a wide variety of socioeconomic and cultural differences. Because when those differences, when that disparate population get together and worship the same God and love and care for one another, the world goes, that doesn't happen very often. How do you love that guy? And so it'd be easy for me to stand up here and say, well, we need to be multi-ethnic and multi-generational and multicultural. The problem is, if our foundation isn't already that I love you because of the gospel, or I'm here because of the gospel, we can't make that leap to the people that I don't really like. Let me try to flesh this out for you. What draws you to this congregation? There's nothing wrong with many things drawing you. Some of you are here because you have kids of a certain age and there's things for those kids to do. Nothing wrong with that. But if that's why you stay, then you've missed the impact of the gospel. Because if that's why you stay, if you're here because of some temporary, in the grand scheme of things, benefit to you or your family, then your relationship is based on something that will eventually go away and it's not based on the gospel. Because in five years, six years, we will not have any kids under our roof anymore. And if the only reason that we're here is because there's, there's good stuff for our kids, then in five years all of a sudden that reason, what draws me to you, what connects me to you, is gone. The glue that holds us together no longer exists. The foundation by which we have relationships, poof, disappears. But if I relate to you based on the truth of the gospel that you and I both are in desperate need of God's grace, that you and I have been redeemed by the God of the universe, and that you have something to offer me and I have something to offer you, if that's the foundation of our relationship, then it really doesn't matter whether my kids stay or go. It doesn't matter whether we have similar interests or hobbies or activities. I can love you because the God of the universe loves me and I know that I did nothing to deserve that. And I can love you even if you don't deserve it, even if we don't have anything in common, even if it's awkward, even if I feel like I'm talking to a brick wall sometimes because I don't, we just don't have those things in common. I have got to learn. We have got to learn how to love each other based on the gospel and not just those things that we enjoy. And I enjoy things about all of you, enjoy talking to you. There's things we do have in common. That's wonderful. Let that help build the bridges so that the gospel becomes the foundation. So that when life situations change, the relationships don't go poof. If, if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, 
you've got a problem with your hand, it needs to come off. You know, I'd do anything that I could to keep it. I'd get a second opinion. Uh, I would take whatever I need. Tell me what to do so that I can keep this, right? This is important to me. I care about this. Do we feel that way about the members in this room? That if someone walks away, do we say, ah, just a hand, another one? Just a, a sense of hearing. I can still see. Or do we fight tooth and nail to figure out, why did that person leave? Do I make phone calls? Do I ask questions? Do, do I try to figure out where they went and why they're gone? I know over the course of the five years that we've been here, I know for a fact that there's been people who've left this congregation that never got a phone call from anybody. I'm not talking about those folks that, that moved away, that physically moved. And people that were a part of this body that left that never heard from anybody. Would you treat your hand that way or your hearing or your feet? Uh, I've got some other friends I've got people that I'm tight with. I mean, we're not a big body. That doesn't mean that everybody in here has to be best friends with everybody else. That's really not possible. We don't have the mental capacity to do that, I don't think. But it's a rather 747-like testimony to the world when we love and care for one another enough that we fight for one another. Even those people that sort of drive us crazy and that, you know, it's, it's sort of better off that they're not here. <laughs> there's less tension. There's less angst. There's less whatever. ends that section in verse 13 by saying, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart in my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me at first. I think what Paul is trying to say is that, that his stewardship, his willingness to suffer, that they would know the truth of the gospel... His willingness to put it all on the line and be willing to undergo hardship and, and discomfort and imprisonment. That they get, to, they get to experience glory, the glory of, of a unified, very diverse church. They get to experience glory because of what He has suffered. And that really is the call to each one of us. Are we willing to, to undergo hardship for the sake of somebody else? The love of somebody else. What are we willing to do to fight tooth and nail so that these relationships are founded on the gospel and not just some surface, we get along, we have the same interests, we have the same socioeconomic status in life. But the fact that you and I are redeemed and neither one of us deserve it. 
that there's nobody in this room that's any better than anybody else, that we are all destined for hell without God's sending His Son and the death and resurrection of Christ. Is that what binds us together? That mystery was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit to be specific that those people that Jews couldn't stand, hated, didn't want to have anything to do with, that those people are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And when we live that out, I love going to airports and watching those big things take off. And every time it happens, I'm still amazed. I can't figure it out. How does that big thing that weighs a million pounds just sort of, it seems like it just effortlessly just glides up. How does that happen? I mean, it's noisy. The ground shakes, but it's a miracle when it happens. And that's what the local church is supposed to be for the world when we love one another based on the gospel. And so this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together because it's a reminder, remember, as we've talked about before, that you and I are in the same boat. As we partake of the promise of forgiveness, let it be a reminder that everybody sitting in this room is in the same boat you are. You're not any better, but you're also not any worse, and that's good news. The blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive whatever it is that you bring to us this morning. Let that, let that comfort you, let that encourage you, but also let that challenge you that, that this little taste of grace is to be for you a stewardship that you give to one another and that you seek to, to shine light to the world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the gift of grace. As we celebrate together, God, use this to nourish us and encourage us that we might truly know what it means to be your church. That organism that speaks the truth of the gospel to a dying world. How do we need you? Father, we praise you that you gave your body as we partake of this bread. Help us remember that 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 night you gathered the disciples around you and you broke that bed and you said, Take. Take. You offered yourself to them and to us. Help us remember. That through you, through your body, we have access into the Holy of Holies. And God, as we partake, help us to be mindful of those sitting to our right and to our left and behind us and in front of us. That that, that person too needs grace. 
that your body was given for them as well. Show us where we fall short in our love for those sitting around us in this room. Give us wisdom and insight and creativity of how we can love them well. And God, we look forward to what you will do in and through us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.